Our scripture reading is on uh, page 448 of your pew Bible. It's Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of the Lord. Well, it was just pointed out to me, uh, I know it's disappointing when you pull out your bulletin, it says Les Newsom, and then the new guy walks up uh, to preach. But uh, I'm associate pastor, uh, Brian Sorgan Fry, and uh, really glad that you're here. And uh, my dad actually grew up uh, in New Orleans. And so I grew up quite frequently driving down with my parents to visit them. And what I began to learn, if, if any of you have kind of connection to New Orleans, is that New Orleans people they just have a different connection to food than everybody else. And my uncle, we would be like shopping downtown and it'd be time to eat. And the way my family works is, okay, let's grab a sandwich. We're at the aquarium. There's the subway. And my uncle would be so offended. Uh, we're not going to a subway. We're going down to Luigi's, which was like seven blocks away because there, and he would start explaining. He has fresh Parmesan that's been aged for 24 months. He has this turkey. He has this French bread that New Orleans water does, you know, and, and we would, so we'd walk all the way. And then as we would eat, my uncle would just, he would talk and he would, he called me wrestler. Be a wrestler. You feel that mozzarella pop in your mouth? Can you taste it? And to me, it was funny, but as I've gotten older, especially when a counselor uh, hit me with a piercing question, when he asked me, Brian, why, when you eat alone, are you always working and doing a thousand other things? Why can't you like taste the salt? Uh, and I'm not going to unearth all of my, my issues, but what, what it made me realize was my uncle had a, he just had a different relationship with food because he, he saw it not just as this thing to be consumed and get on with life, but that he would let it sit in his mouth. He would enjoy the flavors. It brought out the fullness for him. And as we keep looking at this series called My Strange Bible, uh, we're trying to wrap our minds around the way that Scripture was given to us to kind of apprehend and listen to and read. And its form is that it's meditation literature. That's actually supposed to sit with you and simmer and bring out all the beauties and flavors and sufficiency of it. And so often I just kind of want to drop it in and move, move on. So what I want to talk about this morning is um, what is the definition of meditation? You can see up there. What's the power of meditation? How do we practice meditation and what's the key? Okay. The definition. All right. So Psalm 1, it opened. You heard Kurt reading, but it gives you two pathways. And it says there's a pathway of blessing, of a good life, of being fulfilled. And verse 2 shows you kind of what centers that, that good life, that blessed person. And it's a person that delights and meditates upon the law. Now, the law is the Hebrew word Torah. Here, that just means all of Scripture. And so you at least apprehend that, okay, meditating, whatever that means, is pretty key. It kind of dictates a path here. So what does it mean to meditate? Because if you hear, if we hear meditate in our culture, I, I think we think of like emptying the mind, 
kind of legs crossed, you know, finding some kind of peace. But if you hear meditating on Scripture, on the law, it sounds kind of, I don't know, mystic and super spiritual. And I kind of want to dethrone that because meditating is actually, it's focusing your mind on something. It's filling your mind with something. The word meditate literally means to murmur to yourself, to speak to yourself. And so it's someone who is meditating on the law of God, it's the picture of him kind of murmuring it over and over to himself. And I realize that sounds strange, but remember, for most of world history, most cultures have been oral. Nobody, Nobody had their personal Bible. They would listen to it. They would talk about it. They'd speak it back to themselves. And this is saying, blessed is the man who mutters, who meditates. And I know that sounds strange, but, but, but look at the previous line and it'll, it'll flesh it out. How do we mutter? It's connected to the fact that he delights in the law of the Lord. In other words, Psalm, the, Psalm, uh, the psalmist assumes that whatever this person delights in, he begins to mutter to himself. He, delight, he, he, he meditates on it. You will focus on that. You will chew on it. So this is kind of the rationale of Scripture, that whatever, I, whatever my chief delights are in, whatever I think is most important, whatever I kind of build my life on, I will meditate on that. I will murmur it to myself, which means everybody meditates the Christian, the non-Christian, the religious, the non-religious, everybody has their mind focused on something that they delight in and they roll it over and over in their mind, speak it back to themselves until it affects them. This is the aha moment for me from my friend Brian Habig because think about what happens when we worry and you'll start realizing worry is a form of meditation. It's just life draining meditation, right? Because it's a sustained focus that rolls over in your mind and it starts affecting you, right? Some of you started school last weekend. Some of you are starting this week. Some of you college students are starting in a couple weeks. Think about what happens when you worry about school starting. It starts rolling over in your head, right? Or there's going to be friends in my classes. Uh, How hard is this class going to be? I still don't feel like I fit in this year. And as you roll it over in your mind, it actually affects your emotions. I can remember going to class with a pit in my stomach. It has started affecting me. It'll even start affecting your decisions and behaviors. My wife has told me that she can remember the outfits she wore on her first day of class, right? So important was that. Because it is, it started, you started murmuring it to yourself. And so meditation in the form of worry, here's what you start realizing. It takes information But as you begin to digest it and it gets inside of you, it starts shaping everything about you. It's your heart. And so meditation, I I kind of want to dethrone it, it's simply the sustained reflection upon something that gets inside of you and affects you. And that's when you realize that a lot of the commands in the Bible aren't telling you to do something new that you don't already do. It's telling you to reorient what you already do towards God, toward what's life-giving. Everybody meditates. The question is, what is the object of your meditation? Is it life-giving or is it life-draining? Then that brings us to, well, what is its power? Because when you take the psalm as a whole, you do. You get this picture of two paths. I'm on one of two paths. You're on the path of the, ble- of the blessed man or the path of the wicked man. And when we hear wickedness, if you're like me, you kind of think of the worst caricature out there. But connect it to the principle of we all delight in, we all murmur something to ourselves. And what you'll realize is that the wicked man 
simply delights in something besides the Lord, something of this world, probably a good thing, but that has become my focus. And the two pictures that you get of these two paths that actually scripture wants you to meditate on is one path, the path of the righteous, the path of meditating upon the, the scripture leads you to be like a tree planted by a river or meditating upon something else, upon something upon this world leads you on the path to become like chaff. See, e even Psalm 1 is getting you to meditate, saying, think about these pictures. So think about chaff. What is chaff? Again, I didn't grow up on a farm. I grew up in the city of Jackson. And so chaff to me was when I would go watch my brother play baseball and my dad would let me get peanuts and I'd sit in the stands, right? And you'd, you'd break open the shell, you get to the hard substance, but sometimes you'd put the substance in your mouth. You found there was this like red, like flaky that would get in your mouth and you'd have to, right? And, and, and you'd kind of try to blow it out, it, right? It had no substance. It was empty. It was just blown around. That is chaff. And so go with the picture. If the object of my meditation, if my delight is in, is in my security is in something of this world, he says it leads to a place of emptiness, of being shallow, of being like chaff. So the Olympics that happened not too long ago, one of our, one of our American skiers, uh, really she was, she was favored to win. Um, she just had a tragic two runs on the mountain. Uh, one, uh, something happened to her knee and the other, she just, she made a mistake. And so she didn't even qualify. And at the end of the interview, or they were interviewing afterwards, here's what she said. She said, I don't even know. I feel like the last 15 years of my life have been a complete waste. It makes me doubt everything. I thought I knew myself. I thought I knew skiing, but it's all a waste. Like I'm not belittling that. Like if I'd spent that long training for the Olympics, deep sadness. But it was so disruptive that she was saying, I, it all feels empty. I don't even know who I am anymore. And again, I realize that could seem far out. So, so bring it closer to home. What about if I meditate on, I need people to like me? What if I'm convinced the thing that's going to hold my life together, if that's my chief delight, is that the right people like me. I need my coworker to like me. I need this, this boy to like me or whatever. As that, right, as I start working that into my head and I start thinking about it and murmuring to myself, what happens? I'm asking, how can I make sure this person likes me? Which means I start becoming like chaff. Why? Because I start changing who I am based around other people's opinions. I start being blown around by other people's opinions. So if you criticize me, it doesn't just hurt, it devastates me. Or if you, incur if you encourage me, it's not just nice, it actually inflates me. And there's no stability. It's an empty life. Right, if I set my heart upon the, the stock market or the bank account or like me, I, awesome. I put money in crypto not too long ago and then it happens and you're like, I was, the, and it, it kind of, it's not just sad, it cripples you because, because life is chaff. And I think if you follow that reasoning, it'll help with verses five and six, because it's telling you that each of these paths lead in a certain direction and there's an end. And it says the way of the wicked is characterized as not standing in judgment, it will perish. So keep connecting the dots, right? If uh, verse one talked about the scoffer, what is, what is a scoffer? What is a scoffer meditated on? Well, scoffer is somebody who honestly thinks he knows it all. 
And he mocks everybody else, honestly, he ends up even mocking God. And he puts people down. So what do I have to always be thinking about to become a scoffer? Well, I just have to murmur to myself that I have it all figured out. I'm the one who's right. And so I murmur about other people's errors. <laughs> I murmur about how those people on that side of politics are, are, are my roommate. They're the problem. I've got it right. And even scripture itself, I start reading in such a way, and honestly, in a mocking tone that I make it fit my life instead of letting it be over me. That's the scoffer. And as I churn over that, as that becomes the thing that I'm always thinking about, I'm above everybody. I have it figured out. Do you see what the Lord is graciously revealing, though it's hard? He says there's, a, there's an ending to that. It's you perish. Because that self-absorption, that, that, that life of just being above it all, God, it's as if God grants your desire and says, here, you can, have, you can be alone. You can be in darkness. You can be, at, you can be a, above it all and independent of everything, and it's misery. It's an ending of chaff. But if you contrast that with the blessed person, right, whose meditation upon the law, upon Scripture, instead of chaff, he says it's like a person. I mean, it's like a tree who's planted by, by a river and is, is producing fruit in season and leaves that never wither. But there are seasons. It still gets cold and the wind still blows and it's still hard, but he says there's stability, because the roots are going into something deeper and better, even amidst hard stuff. And so I, I heard about this new, uh, a newsletter from a missionary that a friend of mine knew where he, he was sending out his prayer newsletter. And this is from Africa. This is what the prayer request began with. It said, today I was with a 65 pound woman who was withering away on a breathing machine with a colostomy bag. And she was smiling, saying, God has been so good to me, I can't thank him enough. And then the prayer was this, may we have her perspective. Like, when I read those things, it actually makes me nervous. Because I look at that, and that woman is walking through, I mean, walking through all the things that I fear losing. I'm in a colostomy bag. And yet, there's something deep where she's still able to say, and God has been so good to me. I can't thank him enough. See, there, there was a meditation that she's done over her life that was beyond her circumstances. They create a stability. It doesn't mean you're never sad. Of course you are. It doesn't mean that you never suffer. Of course, those things still come, but there's a rootedness that we have. And so keep, keep going along with our analogy earlier. So if my delight is in reality itself, which is Scripture, and, and the character of God, then when somebody criticizes me, nobody wants that. I don't want to be criticized. It hurts. However, what has Scripture shown me? Scripture has shown me that I'm probably a bigger sinner than I think. And so when someone criticizes me, it enables me to say, she's probably right. And thank goodness she doesn't know all the story. Because I'm now, I'm now back into reality. But and scripture shows me that Jesus loves sinners. That Jesus came to show mercy. And the very revelation of my faults it sends me into a greater joy and a greater stability of the one who died for me. And so the meditation on scripture brings a stability. And so meditation is murmuring. It's this uh, murmuring to self and fixing your mind so that it begins to affect you. But it has a power that it actually pushes you along a path. 
So what does the practice of this look like? And we'll be quick here. How do we meditate? Well, it does. It takes time and consistency. It takes effort. And you can see, right, when it's talking about verse 1, what he's not supposed to be, you see that he's walking and then he's standing and then he's sitting. It's this, it's this path. I'm trapping in something and now I'm kind of stopping and now this is the place I'm going to live. I'm dwelling here. And the one who is planted like a tree, what does it say? He meditates day and night. So yes, scripture, it's meant to be read and listened in such a way, this is how it was designed, that over a long period of time with consistency and reflection, it's actually designed to be apprehended and chewed upon until you kind of bring out all of its beauty for the rest of our life. That's part of meditation. And so, you know, let's take this example. How would this work? Let's say you really start reading the Bible for the first time, um, I don't know, as an adult in college. And you at least have enough categories for where you are in the South that you know the name of Abraham, you know the name of Israel, and you start reading in Genesis. And so you get to where you realize that, okay, this guy named Jacob, his name becomes Israel, and he has received the promises of God. So he's on God's side. And then you start reading that he has two wives and he has multiple concubines. You're like, what? This is, making, is, is God like blessing polygamy? Right? What is going, that's what it seems like on the first reading. But Scripture is designed in such a way that if you keep reading, you keep thinking, you keep praying, you'll start noticing patterns of Scripture. And as you reread and reread, you'll realize, oh, every time somebody has multiple wives or concubines, it ends in disaster. There's shrapnel everywhere. It's not commending it. It's just showing it to me. It's working it out. And the scriptures are absolutely in all these different ways and depths showing me God's beautiful design for sex and marriage. This has always been there. But it took meditation. Or, this is a conversation I had a lot back, back when I was a campus minister, you know. Um, um, like a student would come and would have real doubts. Doubts about the Bible or even doubts about about their own self because they were in deep depression and sorrow because either something had happened to them or chemicals or whatever. And it was always interesting because the, the first flinch response would be to fe- was fear to express doubt. As if this kind of dark depression or this kind of doubt somehow meant I must not be a Christian. And what's interesting is if you, if you ever meditate on the Psalms, if you really read them frequently, Here's what will start popping into your head. Things that say, Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I have sorrow in my heart? Where did I get the idea that doubt and depression is contrary to the Christian life? I just never saw it. It never became a part of me. Words have been given to me. And so, yes, it takes exposure and effort and over a long time because the picture is that it's a tree with roots growing and roots take a long time. So the practice of meditation, and I know this is going to sound self-serving, there's no way it doesn't, but here's the consistency. You showed up this morning. That's a win. (laughs) When you showed up this morning, whether you've realized it or not, you've been surrounded by God's word. You have heard it, you've sung it, you've confessed it, 
There is a medit, and you have listened to this guy talk for like 20 minutes about, about Psalm 1. Something is happening. It's actually shaping you. Something is happening if you keep coming week in, week out, if you join up in a Bible study that is starting to compete with the other things that we meditate on. Because for six days, we are out there and all kinds of voices that you're hearing that are telling you that your, your value is based on how successful you are, how much money you have, or how many mistakes that you've made. And here, as you meditate on Scripture, it tells you, no, your value is wrapped up in Jesus and what he says. But that takes consistency. And so we've seen that meditation is a, is a murmuring to yourself and that uh, the power of it is actually directs your path and that the practice takes consistency, takes effort. Takes, it's going to take a long time, and that's okay. That's its design. So what's the key? Because the truth is, if we finish right now, there's a sense that I could just say, so just read your Bible more. And we should, hear me, or, or listen more. And it, it's not less than that. But there's a sense that that becomes a self-sufficiency thing. Okay, I just got to go do this. But when I realize that my meditation is connected to what I delight in, now I have a problem. Because I can't just change my delights. I'm always like delighting in other things besides the Lord. What do I do about that? So George Robertson, uh, pastor from Philadelphia, he had pointed me to this story. Uh, there's a famous, pretty famous Bible teacher named Joseph Flax. And he, on a visit to the Middle East to do some mission work, somehow gathered a, a group of Jews and Arabs. And so he went to the Old Testament, because that's revered by uh, all those categories. And he began reading Psalm 1. He read the whole thing. And then he asked, who, who is this blessed man? Who's the blessed man uh, that, uh, you know, that has never scoffed, that, is, um, uh, that does not stand in the way of sinners nor, you know, walks in the counsel of the wicked? This, this appears to be an absolute sinless man. And there's a long silence. So he pressed it. He said, well, could this be our father Abraham? And an elderly Jewish person said, no, it can't be Abraham. Uh, he lied about his wife. He did some wrong things. He said, okay, what about what about Moses, the great lawgiver? He said, it can't be Moses. He lost his temper. Didn't even get to go into the promised land. Then he went on David. What about, you know, all these things. And so there's a long silence. And another elderly Jew arose. True story. He said, my brothers. He said, I have a little book here. It's called the New Testament. I've actually been reading it. And if I could actually believe this book, if I could believe it was true, I would say that the man of the first psalm was Jesus of Nazareth. Did you hear that? There's an elderly Jewish man, by all accounts had quite a knowledge of the scriptures known as the Old Testament. But I think what started happening to him was living water started flowing into him. Because he started being confronted with, or his heart started being warned by the person of Jesus and his work. Because see, centuries after Psalm 1, what's going to happen is scripture tells us that God the Son will take on flesh in the person of Jesus. He is the blessed man. He's the one who meditates on Scripture day and night. Les talked about this a few weeks ago. Like when you pricked Jesus, Scripture came out. Even on the cross, he is quoting Scripture. Everything he does is perfect. Every way he trusts his heavenly Father. And that man, that God man, stands up towards the end of his life and he yells, If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Did you hear it? 
That means Jesus on the one hand is the tree, but he's also the living water. He is life to us. Because anytime you start interacting with Psalm 1, you start thinking about meditation, you have to admit, I think I'm like chaff. (laughs) I think I delight in all these other things. Which means the way of the righteous in verse 6 is not like a system of living or simply being more disciplined, though all that is great. The way is a person, and his name is Jesus. God in the flesh, the one who came for thirsty, dying chaff, who have hard time delighting in anything but things of this world. Because when you start looking at Jesus, you realize he poured his life out for me. He's always anchored in his father's love, always perfect, meditating on the Lord day and night. And where does his life end? Not appearing to be this blessed tree, but hanging on a wooden cross, bleeding out, looking like worthless chaff. Why? Because he's taking what we deserve. He's taking the path of judgment. Do you know what drove him to take a path of judgment? He's meditating on something. He's meditating, yes, on his father's love. And he's meditating on you. You're filling the mind of God. He is suffering for you and me. And he's glad to. And when you begin to hear that, that Jesus became chaff to give me abundant life, if you at all sense a delight, just a little delight coming up in you, that's it. The meditation has happened. Keep going with that. It's about his grace. It's about his beauty. The focal point of scripture, which we'll talk about next week, really is Jesus, not you or me. And that's good news because the scriptures reveal him. And so I'll just end with this. This is what I think Jesus does. If you want to come back to our life-draining meditation that we and everybody does called worry. And I'm not trying to make worry sound simplistic. I know there's clinical, it's very hard. But Jesus actually says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, why do you worry? And I think, okay, why do I worry? Because I think nobody really looks out for me but me. That's what I think. That's how I live. It's all these things that I'm concerned about that I, that I delight in, that I've got to hold together. You know what Jesus says when you bring those to me? He doesn't say, here, I'll give you all those things. I wish that's what he'd say. No, he says, hey, look at the birds. They don't, they don't appear to be anxious because they know their father cares for them. How much more does your father care for you? Jesus actually flips it and says, you can trust me. Look at your value. You're so valued that the father sent me his most precious possession so that you could be mine. I became chaff. So I'm not going to quit caring for you. It's a call of trust. And so, yes, the Bible is meditation literature. It's designed in a way that encourages a lifetime of reading and reflection. Why? Because for a lifetime, our hearts keep pulling away and trying to delight into things of this world, and it really is draining my life. And so it takes a lifetime. But at the same time, it's a lifetime because Scripture uncovers the depths and the beauties of Jesus in new and thrilling ways because it keeps meeting my sin, it keeps meeting my boredom, and keeps showing me that there's a Savior that loves the real me. And that forms you slowly into a tree that is planted by streams of water. Do you know that? That's an invitation. Let's pray. 
Father, you really do take care of the birds. Uh, and how much more value are we? Uh, but we come this morning, a lot of us feeling like chaff, um, delighting in things at the end that really are empty, and we just can't will our heart to change. But would you show us Jesus? Would you show us the one who became chaff so that we could, we could have life? And I pray that that would give us a delight, a delight that we could meditate on, both in the word heard, but also in the word tasted and seen this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.